Actually, it was a big jackpot for them because last year or 2021, when the boom of the, the value of our cards exploded, as you said, some cards were worth six figures. GM and welcome to DeFire, the crypto podcast that's like the gym buddy who snaps a towel at you every time you try to leave early. We are here to keep you motivated. My name is Jonas and today on the show you hear the story of the NFT godfather you have probably never heard of. Shaban Shameh is a true NFT OG. This guy made NFTs when the word NFT didn't even exist yet. Back in 2015, he put the cards from his fantasy game, Spells of Genesis, on Counterparty, a layer 2 protocol on Bitcoin. Talk about being ahead of the curve. Now, let me tell you how I stumbled upon this legend. I was at the European Blockchain Conference in Barcelona, which to be honest was a bit of a stuffy suit and tie affair. I wasn't really making any exciting connections until this guy walked up, waping away and just casually joined the conversation I was having with a friend. Lo and behold, it turned out to be none other than the inventor of one of the first NFT projects himself. And guess what? He is from Switzerland, living right in Geneva. It's amazing how fate works at these events, isn't it? So we'll be kicking off our chat with Shaban Chameh in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. CryptoValley.jobs is a job board where engineers, designers, analysts, traders and community builders can find cool crypto jobs. Full disclosure, I run this job board. So if you're looking for a job or you want to advertise an open position, please go and visit CryptoValley.jobs. And while you're there, make sure to sign up on the email lists so you're always informed when new jobs are posted on the platform. That's CryptoValley.jobs. And now let's start the show. If you want to get your company or project in front of our growing audience, visit DeFire.money or send me an email, jonas at DeFire.money to learn more about the DeFire community. You walked up and I had obviously no idea who you were. And it turns out you are like the godfather of NFTs on Bitcoin, right? You never know who's walking around these conferences. And that took me by surprise because I just <laughs> recently actually learned about Bitcoin NFTs. And we are not talking about originals, which are now obviously the hype. We're going back almost 10 years now when that started. Yeah, yeah. And the space changed a lot. Ten years ago, there was really very few conference about Bitcoin, about blockchain, a bunch of really passionate and crazy people, nothing like the crowds we have now. It's always interesting going to this conference. The first conference was the Rare AF in New York, 2017, that was focused on NFTs. It was the, the, the really beginning. It was small. It was really a gathering on Twitter. People said, hey, hey, we should meet each other and do something. And it was Joe Looney and um, Rare Pepe and as well Dada organized all this. It was very spontaneous. 
and very small, but it was full. It was really fully packed of crazy people like us. And that was the first, I would say, NFT-focused conference that I've, I've been. It was the, the beginning of the craze around CryptoKitty. And there was a speaker from CryptoPunk. So if the punks were there, what time was that? 2017. 17. Ah, in the in the yeah. hype, in the epic bull run. It was Crypto Kitty uh, uh, run, I would say. Yeah. Okay, interesting. When you go to these conferences and you, you you walk around and you you meet people, how do you introduce yourself? Like, how do you make them interested in what you have to offer? How do you reveal that you are one of the godfathers <laughs> of <laughs> NFTs and Bitcoin? What is your line? What is what is my line? I think it's always different to whom you're talking to. I'm doing NFT for several years on on Bitcoin blockchain and maybe discussing the topics like the new trends and everything, mm -hmm. and also sharing experience. Uh, Jaman, what I'm going after is, can you do a short introduction of yourself? You know, like with your name and and, and what you do that people know. Ah, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so yes, I'm I'm Shaban Shame, founder of Everdreamsoft, and Everdreamsoft started as a game company in 2010. And in 2015, we issued the first tokenized asset in game with our project Spells of Genesis. At this time, it was really new. There was cryptocurrency projects mostly about creating sub-currency or representing equity with a token or something like that. And we said, okay, let's represent game item. Let's have ownership on a game item distributed in a decentralized way. Mm -hmm. Why this is important now, of course, more people are familiar, but at that time, it was really hard to understand why people would want to have ownership. And one example I was giving at that time, and that was 2014-15, is when you buy a, a song or music, you go to the store and then you exchange money and you receive a CD and then your, the CD is yours. You keep it forever in your collection and your, your grandkids can uh, inherit it from them. If you go to iTunes store, for example, you can buy the CD at the same price, but if you die, everything is gone because they close your account and that's it. And you're not free mm -hmm. to to lend your CD to someone. And if you look at gaming, um, gaming, it's also constructed around this because everything you own is tied to your account. And we said, okay, could we emulate, because we created a, a trading card game, could we emulate physical trading card game into the digital world? When someone buys a card from us, they have the cards on their account and they are free to do whatever. The Bitcoin technology allowed to do that because for the first time, it is a peer-to-peer -peer thing where there is no central authority who control the, the supply or the transaction. Yeah. So there is a technical innovation. It was hard to understand and to foreshadow because game producer, they would say, yeah, but we don't want that. Why do we want a user to own and be able to trade what they purchase? Because then it prevents us to resell the same content to someone else. If you look at trading card games in general, 
there are two main flagship, I would say. In the physical world, is Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. And in the digital world, it is, it was, it still is Hearthstone, which is very big. So people spend more time on Hearthstone, but they spend more money on physical card Magic the Gathering, even though their playtime is shorter. Because physical, it's harder. You need to have friends and sit around the table. Mm -hmm. And so they spend less money on Hearthstone, but more time. So why is that? People would argue is because the physical thing has more value because you can touch it. While Mm -hmm. if you buy something online in a game, you cannot touch it, so it's less valuable. Which can be true, but not only the bet, which now has proven to be true, is people are likely to spend more money if they have ownership on something and if there is a secondary market where they could resell, even though they will never resell it, they will uh, spend more. So we started issuing the first card in 2015 using the Bitcoin blockchain, using a layer that is called Counterparty. And Counterparty, basically, it's a token layer uh, on top of Bitcoin where it was mostly used to create sub-currencies. We are not talking about non-fungible. It's more like I create my own currency representing the shares. So we said, okay, let's put game cards as a currency, but not they're not a mm-hmm. currency, but they are a trading card. Counterparty has a DEX, decentralized exchange, where you can say, I give this card and I want this card. Mm-hmm. And for a trading card game, that's perfect. That's really something uh, beautiful. And it's decentralized, so people do on their own and we're not in the middle. Mm-hmm. So we started out on Counterparty, and that was a little bit before Ethereum mainnet was released, which was in 2015, few months after we launched our first collectible cards. And okay, because blockchain will be big in the future. It is resilient. The cards that we are producing will stay longer than the product that mm-hmm. use it, the game. So even though we shut down Spells of Genesis, the game, the card will still be there. So as blockchain will grow in the future and more and more people will use it, let's embed into the card allegoric story of the blockchain events because we want the card to be available in museum in 50 years when mm-hmm. people will look back and say hey what how was the the beginning and they they will discover the cards the collectibles and the events that happened for example we have satoshi represented we have the the the, the burst of ethereum so the card, Ethereum card, was released right when Ethereum came. And then we, uh, there was uh, incredible events like the DAO, the big DAO that was hacked on Ethereum. And we represented the DAO as a, a colossus that gets power from the crowd. And mm-hmm. um, the splits mm-hmm. between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. So all these are historical points that were released at the time where the event happened. And we wanted, like, in in several years, people will look back and say, oh, that's th- these collectibles actually tell the story of how it all gets started. That, that's so interesting. 
and I, I want to dive in, in in a couple of these elements later, but let's circle quickly back to the very beginning. You mentioned before the game Spells of Genesis is somehow inspired by these fantasy games like Magic the Gathering, which is well-known, and Hearthstone, which is a digital game, which is also card-based. And they are all in this kind of um, fantasy universe. I think they have this in common. Were you like a big player of Magic the Gathering or how did this interest in this magical world and these games form? Because now I heard it quite analytical why it is good to have, you know, like digital assets, etc. on there and people play more for, for Magic the Gathering cards versus Hearthstone. But where does this passion for this game come from or, or, or this, this world? So I'm a builder. I like to write story, create games since my very young age. So of course I played and I was inspired by big games like, for example, yeah, Magic the Gathering, Lord of the Ring, Lore, Final Fantasy on PlayStation that has really a nice setup universe. And when I was eight years old, I thought, okay, I would like to create games on my own. I started learning programming, got the book, but it was too complicated. And then I really started when I was 12, like being able to do things with a simpler book. But I started making games. But of course, it's a huge work. A lot of people want to make a game, but really you need to have a, a high commitment in order to have a product from end to finish. So I like to write the story. I like to create interesting game mechanics. And I played Magic the Gathering, the, the trading card game with friends. And what I found fascinating in Magic the Gathering was every extension comes with a beautiful background story, a really strong visual identity. And it, it can repeat uh, themselves. So every time there is a new expansion, every three months, you, you go into a new universe and discover new, new things. I made different games. When I was around 16, 17, I decided to do a game from start to finish. So I did try different RPG that I made myself using tools, a little games, programming games. but. I really wanted something that, that, that is out on the, on the market. So I thought which genre I would want to, to do. And I had constraints. The constraint was something that I can do myself from start to finish. So it cannot be a 3D something because one, I'm not good in 3D, but it's also very long and expensive to, to, to mm. create. So that's one constraint, something that I, I can do, something where I can expand the story so I can keep telling a story. And third is something that can potentially be viable or profitable. And the trading card game really fits, tick all these boxes because it's quite cheap to produce, like a new cards and... Mm -hmm. So in terms of design, it's not too heavy. I could do the design myself by taking some picture of water, fire, aggregating. <laughs> and uh -huh. when I uh, was in high school, end of my high school, I created Munga, the, the, the first game. And 
Then I did my university study. So it was more a side project. It was selling. It was a web game. It was on the game on the web. It was selling a little bit. Nothing big, but like a little uh, how do you money. Use, so a quick question. Because um, it's, a, it's a card game, but it's, a, it's purely digital, right, Munga? How, what, what did you sell? And when you say it's on the web, like access to the, was it like a software as a service? Like you pay access or you buy something and you ship it? Like, how was it? Because I think it has been a while, right? Let's also put some timestamps on, on, on that. This has been probably 10 years ago. Yeah, that was 2003 and four. Oh, 20 so years ago. 20, 20 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, okay. It, it was the beginning of internet, and there was not many game content on the internet at that time. Mm -hmm. So as of, I liked programming and I saw an opportunity, I thought should do a trading card game like Magic the Gathering, but on the web, on the internet, which was at that time also something that was not so common. And the business model at that time is uh, many websites used to have a thing called Alopas, where you can send a voucher on uh, with SMS on your mobile okay. to a number. Then you pay on your phone bill and then you receive a voucher code. I use that to sell additional cards. So you could play with the base card, but if you want to buy additional cards, you need to buy a pack of random card, mm. which is the exact concept of a trading card game, but in the digital world. And also I needed to do something where the computer, the AI, can be able to play against the player because there was not a critical mass of user online. So if people want to have fun, they need to be able to play against the computer. And... Mm. Usually, trading card games are very hard for a computer. To this date, I'm not aware of any AI who can play Magic the Gathering, for example, on a real set. Every AI you have for this game, for the digital version, are pre-constructed card decks, so it's a very controlled environment. They cannot evolve in a free environment because every card potentially can change the rule of the game. So you cannot easily program an AI. Maybe now it changed with the progress that we have today, but not. it's hard to say, okay, your computer, you have to play like this when a card can change the game rule while the, the player are playing. Yeah. So it, it was super hard to create an AI. I needed a game that is super strategic, super interesting, but can still be played by an artificial intelligence. Okay, so it cannot be too complex, I guess. that That's the solution. Because as you said, Magic the Gathering is really complex because each card can change the rules. And you did something similar, but it must have been a little bit simpler because you had to have this solution that players can actually play against the computer not because there was not enough other people around to play. And you were still in high school or before high school while you do that. So it sounds like you're kind of a little bit genius almost like honestly like to to pull this off things that have been done for the first time ever like you know it, it was not usual to play online you figured out how to um pay for this with this alopas never heard of it it was kind of like you build in an environment of 
and having a lot of constraints, right, by technology itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, one thing where I'm good at. If there is something, is using what there is available and also foresee where the, the potential is, where the market is. Of course, I have also like a, the, the bad side of my personality, I would say, is I, I can really well foresee where to go, but it's harder for me to address the market, like grow big. For example, as I was at the really beginning of internet and gaming on internet, I could have like launched a huge game success at that time, but it was more at the hobby at that time. Mm -hmm. But when uh, mobile came, I decided to port this game, Munga, in 2009 on mobile. And mobile was super new. It was the beginning of the App Store. Nobody like really bets that people will spend money to play on their mobile phone. And I, I foresee that at that time and that it would be a great, great opportunity to bring this game on mobile. But then I got caught by a big American company, big names like Blizzard and you name it, who came after, but with a much higher budget and mm -hmm. everything. So there, there is something around the location as well, because I'm based in Geneva, Switzerland. We don't have much of a culture of gaming business, that's for sure. So I decided, because uh, the Munga was uh, the mobile version that I launched as a professional in 2009, had a good success, but it could have had a huge success if correct marketing was put, mm -hmm. correct development. Mm -hmm. And we were um, to work with a Japanese company who were supposed to invest. We went really far into negotiation, but in the end, the deal did not happen. And we got like really um, under the water with the competition, the cost, etc. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was in 2012, 13, around that. And I had to scale down all operation and then it became impossible to compete on an international level with a Swiss company, with Swiss cost, with all content that's coming from China, Asia, who can produce 10 times more for 10 times cheaper. So I had to look at opportunities where there is innovation. We need to be on the edge of innovation in order to survive. And that's where I got interested in blockchain and thought there is an opportunity here. And nobody's... So in, we, we were in trouble in 2013 with the market. The mobile market became very mature and competitive. Mm -hmm. So we had to find something innovating. And I got fascinated by Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And I, I thought that's an opportunity to innovate. And this time, we're going to create a game, a new game, Spells of Genesis. That is the continuity of Munga, but different rules, different gameplay. A bit less strategic card game, but more arcade, more accessible. Because my mother always told me, I don't understand anything about your game. I thought, I'll, I want to do one that is easy, but still strategic still keep a high strategic point so so 
we built like Spells of Genesis, which is really a mix between arcade trading card, arcade game like it's easy to take on and the strategy of, of a trading card game. Mm-hmm. And using blockchain, of course, as innovation. And we thought, okay, this time when the competition comes, we don't want to just give out to the competition because they come with a much bigger budget and bigger, stronger. We will build the infrastructure as well. So when the big player will come, they, they will use our, our tool instead of competing with Spells of Genesis. And what is interesting is recently I read that Magic the Gathering, which is the source of inspiration, will use NFTs, tokenized assets, for their trading card. And at that time, nobody would bet like this was a big thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I was pretty sure that in the future, everybody will embrace in a way or another the true ownership. Mm-hmm. And t- tell me, bring me a little bit to this uh, Spells of Genesis game, because for me, it's hard to understand. It was very early days, right? I mean, you have cards that you have on, on the blockchain and it's nothing like we know now. There was no open sea, There was no exchange like that. Also, it was on a thing called counterparty uh, on, on top of Bitcoin. It was something a bit obscure. It's really hard to search for it as well. I tried to find some of the cards. Let's, let, let's bring some numbers. I, I read, uh, for instance, that some of the cards have now traded for 500 thousand dollars sometimes but let's let's start at the beginning how did when you started that game how was it received did everybody get it or was it super hard because it's actually more friction right you have first a, a trading game okay people can get on board with that and you have shown foresight that okay people want to play on their phones that makes a lot of sense but then once you put in the third element which is the blockchain and bitcoin until today people are having trouble onboarding to bitcoin or blockchain in general like how how was it received the game and how was it actually really played because i don't see how you can play a game on the blockchain yeah so the main idea back to the munga time is i noticed on munga that people were trading digital cards for real money under the table And then they would contact the support and say, hey, my account was hacked. Can you reverse the transaction, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it is a nightmare. And actually, other games, usually they just ban. So it's not allowed to trade digital item for real money. Some people did with Blizzard, with, with some things, but it was not really really convenient but if you do that you if you allow people to trade for real money you're custodian of other people's value so you are a bank basically Mm -hmm. you have the power to to change the account and the value of someone if the assets are valuable so that's why it's banned by other game and i thought okay let's allow this the same way it is possible in physical world. So we're going to distribute the card directly, the game item to users. So then they will be free to do whatever they want with the cards. We had to build infrastructure. So we created our wallet, Book of Forbes, that then 
other collection came after following our 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 leads but book of forbes was really the solution for people to be able to trade the card and to have an experience that is more closer to a gaming experience than a financial wallet and we had a user and a fan base on munga and what was interesting is i thought the fan base the one who are really following everything we do they will embrace this idea of true ownership they will mm -hmm. actually make the effort of of i mean not the effort but really like get it and 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 use it and what happened in fact is the spells of genesis then the next game became very popular into the crypto enthusiasts who were very happy to have a game that use crypto so those were the the target and the people who actually embraced the card and bought there are few of the hard hardest of hardest fan who actually created the wallet but there there really there are really a few and they can you, sorry to interrupt but can you can you put some numbers on it just so we have an idea how how many uh, munga players were there and fans you know like these hardcore fans and how many then would you say came over just to have a, an idea yeah to have an idea so probably we had somewhere around 4000 i would say really engaged people out of the 4000 i would say a couple hundreds on the forum on the chat discussing endlessly mm -hmm. and maybe there is a 100 i would know personally because they are very active and over this 100 maybe there is 10 people who actually created a wallet and went through their hurdle mm, okay actually it was a big jackpot for them because last year or 2021 when the boom of the the value of our cards exploded as you said, some cards were worth six figures. So they, a lot of people contacted them. Actually, they chased back the the community, the buyers, on-chain buyer. They really chased who were those guys, found all the conversation online. They actually identify them. And some came back to me that they were long forgotten and say, hey, I got contacted by this guy. He wants to buy my wallet for 5,000 uh, USD. Is it a, a good thing? And looking at the wallet, it was six figure. And I said, no, I do not sell it for, for that price. It's they, so they, they yeah. made all like finding out who was who for those players. And when we released the card, like the legendary one, the Satoshi, we were selling one card, the Satoshi card for $20, which was a huge price compared to things that you buy usually online and at that time even on a mobile game uh, now it's a bit different but at that time spending more than 20 dollars on one item into a game was um crazy crazy idea and then, that was with in bitcoin did you pay in bitcoin at yeah, the time yeah you, you pay in bitcoin and also in bitcrystal which is the currency where we did a crowdfunding an ICO, but it was not called, the word ICO was not created yet, but there yeah. was a, a crowdfunding that we did and we gave BitCrystal on Counterparty, which is a currency used to buy a game card. And 
just to understand the game, you say one one card was twenty dollars, right? Yeah. And how many cards do you need to start playing? Like that's also a, a huge friction. You have to shill out a lot of money just to start playing the game, right? No, because uh, Spells of Genesis is a free to play. You need four cards, and mm -hmm. you can earn very good cards by playing without spending anything. And and like any free to play, you if you buy cards, it will be fast, quicker, and faster for you to uh -huh. get rare and legendary. And the blockchain ones, some are native blockchain, so what, some are created only on chain, and you cannot buy them in the game. And those are limited series, and those are valuable. But they're not necessarily much, much stronger than the other, but they're much more rare, collectible. They have a backstory, mm -hmm. so there is much more about them. And the in-game cards, what we call in-game cards, when you play enough and you level up to the maximum, you can receive a blockchain version of that card. So it's a play to earn in that sense. People can earn a bit by playing, playing, upgrading the card, and then selling the card in the secondary market. But the connection from the blockchain to the game, because the game, was it a mobile game as well, or was it in the browser? It was designed to be a mobile game, just like others, with the catch that you can connect your wallet. And the, all the trading and everything happened outside the game itself, because it's not allowed by Apple. So with in-game purchase, you can buy cards, but in-game, not on-chain, like any other game out there. But more than that, so the game will look at what's in your wallet and will add the blockchain cards to your gameplay session once they are connected to your wallet. Mm. So in-game, you have nothing related to blockchain and everything related to blockchain you do outside in a wallet. Mm -hmm. And now you, you have mentioned already a couple of cards, but I would like just to paint a picture of what are the cards? What are the craziest cards out there? I think Satoshi Nakamoto is one. There are only two hundreds of them, right? And they're the most valuable one to go regularly for six figures. What else did you incorporate? I think there's a Dogecoin card as well. So yeah. that, that shows how far back Dogecoin actually goes. It's really an OG project. What is your what is your favorite card? Um okay. There there are many cards that have a lot of uh, backstory. You mentioned Satoshi card. I will mention as well the FD card, which was distributed for free for people who were finding cure for cancer. Uh, so it was mm. a research with university. You could put your computing power to calculate molecules. Then there was a leaderboard and there was a project called FLDC that will distribute a currency to every contributor to that project. And we had a partnership with them and we say, okay, well, let's distribute a card, a game card to your people. So that's the FD card and it's actually the first card that we issued. And that's also has a price similar to Satoshi card. It has oh. been fully distributed, so we don't own any more of them. So this is like the, the, the two legendary, I would say, of, of Spells of Genesis. Then the Dogecoin cards, it was super interesting because uh, Dogecoin is, of course, a very old project and it was completely different before. Dogecoin community was started out of a meme 
but it was really oriented into a giving economy where on the Reddit, where you go there, you say, hey, I say something and people will just tip you uh, amount. It was a lot around generosity. One of the first topic I made on Reddit, it was in 2012, I think. I asked a question on Dogecoin subreddit. I asked, I am building a game using the blockchain and the is it something that would interest you guys? Because I thought it was a community that would really fit this project. And there was few response like, yeah, maybe yes, yes, interesting. But we have a special connection because it's one of the first community I reached out to have an idea of what they want. And the, the image of Dogecoin is someone giving money, off, offering money. That was really like reflecting the tip atmosphere <laughs> that, that, that was there. Then Dogecoin had a hard time. It really stumbled because there was one guy who was super generous, super nice, who did a lot for Dogecoin. And in the end, he was a scammer. So he built a project. A lot of people invested in that project because they loved the guy because he was really a benefactor. Mm -hmm. And he scammed every, everyone. Moolah, I think, was the project Moolah. And Dogecoin was really hit and the, the whole community and everything was gone. Then mm -hmm. it was rediscovered when the, the, the bull run after as a meme coin and the community completely changed it's the spirit is completely different but we have this card reflecting the really beginning giving part of dogecoin and it was really sought after recently because everybody wanted a copy of that card and, and how many are there of the dogecoin cards there's two thousand. so that's a very common it's not rare it's a mm -hmm. uh, it's a common card but it's it's high in demand. How much does it go for uh, today? Today, probably $2,000. You have to send me afterwards some links where I can see this thing. I, I tried to Google that stuff, but I couldn't find like my way into the, the exchange or, or wherever I can see those... Um, Data. It's, yeah, this data, it's really hard to, to get access to counterparty and, and it's a world on its own. It's really, it's a little bit archaic. I've seen it because I've also done some research on rare pepes, which are also traded on there, right? Yeah, it's, exactly. kind of, it's the same system, which makes you and rare pepes the first NFTs. Would you say these are the first NFTs that were ever um, on the blockchain? Yes. So... So to answer your question, you can go to NFT Relics, NFT Relics. You get a lot of data there around the projects and also the story dates. The yes, Spells of Genesis was the first like really series and something like this more than an experiment, but a, a, a real uh, project. And then Rare Pepe came after. So Mike, who was one of the instigators, said, I was inspired by Spells of Genesis. So I created the Rare Pepe Nakamoto, who is a, a Magic the Gathering layout card. And Rare Pepe is more a movement, while Spells of Genesis is a project led by a company. Rare Pepe is a movement of artists who quickly uh, joined. On Twitter, there is heated debates whether Rare Pepe is the first collectibles NFT versus Spells of Genesis. Some people argue that Spells of Genesis is not art because it's a game, while Rare Pepe is uh, 
uh, art because it has no use case and it's mm-hmm. like really made by by people. And there was a, a tweet by Matt who created Real Pepe. He said, "Yes, giving credits. I was inspired by Spells of Genesis and me giving him credits that he created the first art movement on chain with Real mm-hmm. Pepe." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, and could you? You know, like share your thoughts on the current state of the NFT industry, wh- where it's going, because you seem to have like a, a, a good foresight of what are the issues at the moment, wh- where is the ball rolling next? You've been always at the forefront, technology-wise. Maybe even you could argue sometimes too soon. Um, wh- what are you working on right now, and what are you excited o- about? NFTs, for instance, also side question, ordinals. Are you excited now that ordinals are coming, like bringing back NFTs to the Bitcoin chain or how do you think about that? Okay, so I will start with ordinals. Putting ordinals on Bitcoin blockchain allows permanent storage, which is very interesting. If it becomes too popular, it could be problematic. It would be hard for Bitcoin to handle all these data. So it is always a trade-off. So Ordinal allowing to store data permanently, it's interesting because Coin is the chain that is the most secure and has a less chance of having a major issue at that time. So it's a very good value proposition, but it is not the alpha and omega of uh, NFT. It's uh, one solution to store data on a very reliable chain. When it comes to the future, so there are a multiplicity of blockchains. And also one thing we we did very early on is multi-chain. Because when uh, Ethereum came, a lot of projects migrated from counterparty to Ethereum. And we decided not to just move to Ethereum, but to have a more integrated approach where we allow people to hold their token in the chain they want and in the form they want. So Ordinal is for us, and it's one way of storing, is one kind of NFT, but there are many out there and each of them are a specific market. So... If you're selling something on Ethereum, you are selling to a certain market. If you're selling to Solana, another market. So talking about the future, one of the important thing we noticed that there is a incomprehension between what is a the relationship between a token and an asset. What do I exactly own when I own an NFT? Do I own the image? Anybody can put any image, even if it's a stolen image or I don't have the right. So we are working on a certification authority for NFTs across the multiple chain to protect creators, uh, not to be copied, but uh, just duplicated, faked, a user not to buy scams, etc. We absolutely need this. And that's why we are building Wakwali at Everdream South a blockchain to certify and the future lies in my opinion in the crowd creation and i think we are we are not there yet but that's a complete paradigm shift where before it was a company who creates a game for example or a project where we are heading is 
allowing people to contribute and to add multi-contribution. For example, you draw something, you tokenize it as an NFT. I use this drawing for a level or for a trading card game. I create a new NFT that contains your creation. So every time a card is sold, I have to buy one ingredient from you as the illustrator and one ingredient from the game designer who created the card. Maybe if you create a level, a sound music that you will add. So all micro contribution put together will create something bigger. So we are heading where product will not be only created by company to customer, but customer will also be involved into the creation of the product itself. And that's the true revolution of blockchain. And to reach that, we really need to protect intellectual property, understand the link between token and asset, what I'm allowed to do, clarify that. And with that, we can really envision a metaverse that is built with the contribution of many little contributions. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And just quickly, just so we don't forget about it, because I think that's where you spend now a lot of time to build up this system to verify, right? You, you explained to me at the conference that it's almost like when you go to OpenSea and you see this little check mark, that has been verified by a centralized entity, by, by the OpenSea team, right? You are basically now building a system with game theoretical elements that incentivize strangers or people who want to contribute, similar like miners or stakers contribute to a blockchain, to verify, to lock in some assets. So they say, okay, this project actually is the real spells of Genesis or whatever new project will come up. People will have to figure out which one is the right one. And that's what you're building with Buckwell at, at the moment. Yeah, exactly. There's very few, I would say, game change or, or, or big change in paradigm when it comes to technology in general. And this time we want to have one, to, 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 to build one. And I think we, we really have it. When you look at how blockchain evolved, there is a proof of work. That was really a big, big revolution. Then proof of stake, which was a great solution to some of the problem of proof of work. And we come with proof of democracy, which is a new paradigm shift. It's not like just a new blockchain, faster transaction output or, or, or something like that. It's really a core change. And this core change is incentivizing people to work and tell the truth. So to create a world where it becomes more profitable to say the truth and bust scams than trying to scam other people. So to reverse this in incentivization. And if you look at, it, it is what Bitcoin does, but for a transaction and ledger. So on Bitcoin proof of work, it's more profitable to put your computing power to play with the system you're going to get more reward than trying to attack the system. And we are doing this for human work and research. There are so many scams out there or people claiming fake things. So if we find a way, and that's what we, what we find, to reward them for saying the truth and they are taking a risk and potentially get rewards when it's proven that what they said was correct. This way, we will be able to really simplify 
the human contribution when they claim something that I'm the author of this work. I have the right to use that. I'm producing a video and there is a music and I paid the right to use the music, for example. This way, everybody is well protected. We will need one hour to talk about Wakwili. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. it's really cool. And uh, that's Antoine, really one uh, one's field. But if we are lucky to have like a, 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 a talk about Wakwili, a future talk, I... Yeah, I want to tell this is something I'm super, super excited because it is a huge game changer. And this game changer does not happen often in general. Great. No, it's good. It's a teaser. Maybe we can have you back and, and go into the Buck Valley story. This story was more about Spells of Genesis, yeah. how that happened. We It was great to have you on. Shaban, you are really the godfather, right, of NFTs. You have it on your Twitter, and I think it's a good thing. I use this as a teaser, maybe even put some music underneath, you know, like the godfather music <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for the invitation. If you are still listening, chances are that you liked this episode. DeFi is not just me, it's also you, the listener. And each day there are more listeners joining and together we can spread the word about DeFi by giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Send this episode to a friend who might be interested. Check out the website, visit defire.money and click on subscribe to get the new episode and in the future also blog posts directly into your inbox. Also make sure to follow me on Twitter at DeFiremoney. All of this helps so we can continue to produce more episodes more frequently and get the most interesting guests that you deserve. Good night and see you soon.